Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Today I'm talking to Professor Robert Banks. I've known Rob for many years, first as the R&D manager at MLA and then as the director of AgBoo. Robert has spent all his working life in agriculture. He's contributed academically to Australia's genetic gain in many species. Welcome to the Raw Ag podcast, Robert. Whereabouts are you at the moment and what have you been up to? I'm sitting in my office in Armadale in the Agbo building, the Animal Genetics and Breeding Unit building at the University in Armadale. Um, what have I been doing? Uh, today I've been dealing with some staff contracts. Uh, we've been having some discussions about a couple of pieces of R&D relating to genomics in beef cattle and other species. Um, so so what's your role at, Ag- at Agbo? I'm the director of AGBOO. Um, we've got a team of about 25 scientists and a number of students and other staff and we do lots of work uh, in genetic improvement R&D across a, quite a wide range of species, principally uh, uh, beef. AGBOO develops the breed plan system. We do similar work in sheep, um, they do work in trees and pigs, uh, some work in aquaculture, Doing a bit, a little bit of work now with honeybees. So we work across a range of species of animals, and also some field crops, canola, chickpeas. We're starting to do some work there. So, so how do you how do you work out genetic uh, gain in bees? Well, um, the ex, the idea will be to breed bees that produce more honey in a production season. That have good temperament, so they're not too ferocious. They don't use their stingers too much. Yeah, they don't. They don't sting people too much. Um, they don't mind being handled. There's a range of traits that are to do with basically hygiene and disease minimization of bees. So some bees, uh, some hives are just unbelievably clean, kind of spotless, basically, and others. They, the bees don't tend to clear away like bits of sort of old wax or things like that. And bees also vary in their um, how carefully they remove, uh, for instance, dead bees from the hive, which would be a source of potential infection, and also how quickly they deal with other insects that might come into the into the hive. And the, the hygiene and disease traits are really important because they, obviously, they keep the bees healthy, but they're probably also going to be um, part of essentially being prepared in case um, the varroa mite comes into Australia. It's it's a small mite that attacks bees and has decimated, decimated bee populations around the world. Um, we're also interested in their pollination activity. A lot of bees are used for pollination of 
crops like almonds and apples and so forth. And almost certainly there's variation in uh, genetic variation in basically how active, how widely they forage, uh, which broadly speaking means how widely they'll pollinate. So there's a there's a bunch of things that we would be uh, industry would be interested to improve, and they you know there's genetic differences in bees for all those things. So that's amazing. So you you yeah. can collect the data on that, and then and select you select the queen, or yeah, that's right. You, you're assessing queens on the basis of the performance of the hive because the um, the hive is. Essentially, in simple terms, it's an expression of the queen's genetics, not just her. But um, so, if oh, you've got right. a bunch of hives that you measure for the things that you're interested in, and you know the relationship between the queens, you can do analysis pretty much the same as we do in beef cattle wild breed though. We're starting to use, look into using genomics for that as well. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So when you're looking at bees and you see that there's a um a hygiene difference or a cleanliness difference. Do you um, do you wonder about some of the the humans you meet and what their heritability is on that? <laughs> <laughs> you don't wonder, Tom. It'll be the same story. Uh, I mean, humans are animals. The sorts of things that you know. This is a bit simplistic, but the genetic differences for something like growth rate and height in humans would be similar sort of extent as they are in cattle and sheep and various other things. So differences in, like you were just saying, you know, hygiene and what have you, um, I'm sure there'd be genetic differences in human beings' propensity to be tidy. Very, very hard to see, though, I suppose, because you can't really put humans into, um, into groups for analysis, can you? No, you could probably get around that problem. I think the tricky bit would be um, if you wanted to actually breed more tidy ones, you'd have to hope that the tidy ones like <laughs> you'd have to hope that the tidy ones like like other tidy ones, and they keep on making children together. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Um, Agbu does lots of things, and I obviously those sorts of. Um, techniques you use um, have come from other species and they're being applied to bees mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. And, um, That's correct. Yeah, so you mentioned genomics. Um, Agvu's been doing a lot of work in the commercialisation of single step. So yep. for an organisation like yours, that would be a lot of work, I would imagine. Can you tell us a bit about single step and how it works? Yep. Um, let me sort of go one step back from that. Yeah. In, in all the systems like breed plan and sheep genetics and the analogues in other species, typically we're using information about who's related to whom, the pedigree in other words, in combination with information on the performance of individuals that have been run in the same place together. So, for instance, a group of young bulls, for example, um, at Tamania, we'd be interested in, they've been run together, we're interested in which ones grow faster or which ones marble better and so forth. But we also need information on who's related to whom because, in a sense, all we're trying to do in any of these systems is find out which individuals have got the best genes for whatever we're interested in. And... um, if we can look at an individual and see their performance, that's a good start, or how their performance compares with others, that's a good start. 
But if we know that they've got some relatives that have been in the you know place um, where they're compared with their contemporaries, and we know that we know which are the relatives, though the information from the relatives is, is provides kind of additional clues is a simple way of putting it into the genes of of each of the individuals we're interested in. So, um, in all the species we work with, people like yourselves go to a lot of trouble to keep accurate pedigrees as well as recording performance. And by analysing the data of the pedigree information, the relationships in other words, and the performance information, we can come up with very useful guides to the genetic merit of each animal in the population. By genetic merit, I just mean how good their genes are for the things we're interested in. And people have been doing that um, using the pedigrees that are kept essentially by stud breeders kind of in the normal way for 30 or 40 years now. And it's, it's, a, very, it's a very effective um, method. We've made lots of gains and that's what breed plan's based on. But in recent years, um, roughly the last decade or so, that we've started to have the ability to read the DNA of living organisms, of organisms, um, Similar to what they've been doing in COVID-19 tracing. Yeah, that's right. But, and if people are interested in human origins, you can, you know, you can get your DNA read and kind of tells you what part of the world your ancestors came from and um, that sort of thing. So it's, a, it's based on being able to read the DNA makeup. And once we can do that, we can, um, we can work out more precisely essentially who's related to whom, or more, more accurately, who shares what bits of DNA. And once you do that, you, you can kind of go a step beyond using simple pedigree information. Um, you just get more precise pictures of the value of the genes. That's what genomics really does. Um, and the other thing you can do is... Um, under certain conditions, if you've got, if basically, if you've got enough performance data on animals in your population, um, and you've read their DNA, you can then go into, say, the latest crop of calves before they've been measured for anything, and by pulling a, t a tail hair or taking a tissue sample and reading their DNA and looking at the patterns of their DNA, you can work out which ones of them are going to be which ones have got the best genes for the things you're interested in. And Agbu has been doing a lot of work on uh, developing up the methods for doing that for application in the species we work with and understanding the, the properties of that, that technology and what, what sort of data you need to make it really worthwhile. Um, there's been a, a lot of extremely good work done um, Great inputs from people like Vincent Bonner, Andrew Swan, David Johnson and others in our team developing code that can handle what are literally humongous amounts of data um, so that the systems like BreedPlan and Sheep Genetics, um, TreePlan, which is the forestry equivalent, are all now using um, DNA information on individuals in the populations and using that to give more precise estimates of animals and plants' genetic merit. But the other thing that it enables is, is, is you can do that 
very early in life. So, that, for instance, you don't have to wait till an animal's one or two years old and it's you know, measured its growth or whatever. You can, as long as you've got the data to draw on, you can basically read their DNA as soon as they're born, if you want to, and come up with a very good idea of which ones in the population have got the best genetics. Some people say this yeah. is a silver bullet, you know, that you take it's a DNA sample and tem- now you can know everything. Yeah, it, it's tempting to be rude about people who say things like that, Tom. <laughs> um, DNA technology genomics is, is not a silver bullet at all um, because of, I mentioned a couple of times in what we are just saying that you've got to have data behind the technology in order to, to be able to do the things that I've just described. So, for instance, if you want to be able to read the DNA of young calves and work out which ones have got the best genetics for, let's say, growth rate and marbling, just for example, you need to have what's called a reference population where you've measured quite a significant number of animals in that population for growth rate and marbling, in this case, and read their DNA. So essentially you can you can line up the DNA patterns with the observed performance difference and work out what what patterns go with good performance. Now, if you don't have that, if you don't have that reference data, then pulling a tail hair out of from a young calf is not going to tell you anything. It's and so in that sense, it would be a silver blank, not a silver bullet. <laughs> yeah. the, real, the, the silver bullet bit of it is that you can do that in the young calf and or a young lamb or whatever, um, but the bullet's only worth anything if you've got that reference population in place and it turns out you need to basically keep it topped up over time so that somewhere in your, in your population or your breed or whatever there needs to be some data collection of the things that matter, the thing, the traits that you're interested in, and the DNA being read of those animals. And so under those circumstances, in some ways it's fair to say it is a silver bullet because you can literally read the DNA of a young calf, for instance, and get a good estimate of its the value of its genes without actually having to measure its own performance. And... That's a pretty attractive proposition. Um, it's and it's no different in any species. Don't think I'm just talking about beef cattle here. This applies no matter what we're talking about. Um, you mentioned a minute ago about, about COVID, and obviously there's a lot of genomics being done on COVID. But the thing that's that's really important is that somewhere there's an increasing amount of data on the virulence of different forms of COVID, um, so that that's why we want to know about them. Yeah, okay. we, we can understand how the COVID um, virus is evolving, but we can also get a sense of uh, which forms of it are, are more dangerous and, and what DNA patterns are associated with that. Yeah, okay. So the idea that you can, you can just read DNA and suddenly everything is revealed to you, that's not true. Yeah, it's a really good example, isn't it? Because you got you, you, you. In the first instance, what we're doing is we're trying to find where the strains are coming from in the COVID. Yep. But we already know from other research and information that those strains are causing uh, are more contagious or are more deadly. That's right. And so every time you That's find right. the DNA in one of those strains later on, you know it's more contagious and more deadly. 
That's right. It's a, it's it will be very helpful in the diagnosis, and it's it's um it's why people sharing you know medical data, you know whatever data has been collected about COVID, um, that data will, is just so valuable to the people doing the research because it's it's going to help them understand how the how the virus is evolving, and um, it's it's. Yeah. It, it just cannot be stressed too much that if you don't have data in your population, you all you really can do is sort of trace, um, you know, this one's related to this one or this strain is similar to this strain, but you can't do anything about um, predicting the performance, what their genes are actually going to deliver. You can only do that if you've got what I refer to as reference data. That's fantastic. So we can make change genetically and, you know, that's obviously pretty obvious amongst you and I, but we can make change. How do we know that the effort that we're making, the the selection um, of the particular traits are heading us as fast as we can in the right direction? How do we do that? It's a really important question. And obviously it's always Um, changing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the answer is a mixture of basically very careful analysis of what is beneficial and what is not beneficial now, combined with thinking carefully about the future. Let me try and explain that just using a beef cattle example for a moment. Um, Some of the things that we're interested in in beef cattle include things like the growth rate, fertility, um, for instance, marbling of the meat. Um, let's just use those as examples for the moment. Um, if we basically do enterprise analysis, um, we can do it at the commercial production level or the um, and all through the value chain if we want. We can work out what's the what's the value in terms of either extra income or uh, increasing cost of getting, for instance, faster growth rate or higher fertility for more marbling. And we can do that reasonably carefully. Um, it's, it's basically like former gross margins analysis. And that helps us say um, how relatively important is it to, put, to, to breed for, let's say, growth rate or fertility or marbling or for whatever combination of those things we, we want. In sort of simple sense, you might say, well, and I'm not saying this is this is how it is. I'm just using these numbers as a sort of simple example. Let's say that the relative importance of those th- those um, three things was sort of one to two to three. So fertility was twice as important as growth rate, and marbling was three times as important as growth rate. I stress, I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm just using it as an yeah, example. Yeah, just examples. But if, if, but if we know that, we can say right, we're going to steer our breeding program. We're going to pick animals that will move us in the direction that is basically indicated by those relative weightings or the relative importance of those three traits. And we can do that for traits that we know a reasonable amount about. We just we need to know what impact do they have on the income and cost of production enterprises, feedlot enterprises, um, um, processing, butchers, etc. And we combine all those things together um, we come up with what geneticists refer to as selection indexes and they will steer the breeding program in a direction that, that actually maximises the improvement in gross margin. 
Where it becomes tricky, and you alluded to this, Tom, is, well, what about things that might be important in the future? Um, and I'm guessing a really good example of that is methane. Um, currently, we don't have prices in this country for methane or carbon, but it's quite possible that we will, let's say, within 10 years. And the sooner we get on and work that out, the sooner we can start shouldering our part of the responsibility and reducing methane. At the moment, you know, livestock are being blamed, but we still don't know really what the metrics are, do we? Yes. That kind of leads into what I was going to say. It's I was using... I agree with what you just said, but methane's a good example of something that we've... Most people would have a, let's call it a hunch, that it's likely to be more important in the future than it is now. Um, That's not saying how important it will be. It's simply saying, hold on, we're breeding cattle today whose descendants are going to be, you know, they're going to be the production animals 10, 15 years out. Um, And part of the skill of of the breeder is to try to get a sense of what might be important in the future and consider very carefully whether effectively whether to take a punt on doing something about it now. And we have tools that can do that. Um, And again, it comes back to these things called selection indexes, which are just weighting different traits together. But if we thought that methane was likely to be an issue in the future, um, we can we can basically work through the index process as if there was a price on methane. So, and we're, we're doing this now in in beef, cattle and sheep, um, which is really just to start to get a feel for, well, if we put a certain price on methane and we already had the relative importance of, say, growth and fertility and marbling, Let's say we started to imagine a world in which there was a some price on methane. If we add that to the traits we just talked about, what sorts of genetic change could we expect to achieve in a, in a, a defined breeding program? And it's quite possible to do that. And to me, that's a way of um, providing a tool, if you like, to help breeders do something which I think they've they've always done, which is to think about the future and to think about the the additional things that they might be um, putting some selection pressure on. I would imagine back in the, I'll say the 1980s and 1990s, um, some, some beef cattle breeders in this country were thinking about marbling as to whether they should start including it in their, their breeding programs, start trying to breed for improved marbling. Back then, uh, back certainly the 80s and early 90s, as far as I know, there weren't premiums for marbling, but over time they certainly came to be. And all other things being equal, the breeders who'd thought about that earlier, um, or the breeds, would have started moving in that direction faster. So the point I'm trying to make is that there are things we can pretty confidently work out now from knowledge of existing prices and and costs and what have you. But part of the skill and and expertise of the breeder is to think about, well, what about other things that might not be important today? Um, Should I be including them in my breeding program? We have tools that allow people to explore that 
those possibilities. So, and I think methane's quite a good example. So we can, we certainly have good predictions of what would happen if you included uh, methane in your breeding goal for beef cattle in this country um, and how the amount of pressure you put on methane affects how much improvement you make in the other traits. So your original question was how do you, you know, how do you think about what to breed for? I hope I've kind of made it clear that thinking about the things that are important today, there is good standard procedures and usually good information to do it, but thinking about what might be important in the future is a really important part of the breeding expertise and there are tools to help people do that as well. So I was going to really sort of try to expand on what what next. I mean, how much more gain can we make? Um, let me answer that by two little bits of... Well, this doesn't seem like showing off. It's not meant to. Um, people have... It, in a range of species have run long-term selection experiments, you know, in sort of research stations or laboratories um, in a range of species. And there are examples of species where people have been breeding for like 80 or 90 generations. Um, I think the best one I can think of is in maize and breeding for oil content. There's selection lines that have been going for 80 or 90 generations and they're still making progress. Um, dairy cattle have been selected pretty hard now for a lot of generations and there's no sign that if you, if all you were interested in was selecting for milk production, there's no sign of slowing down in the rate of progress of that. Um, slightly lightheartedly, I did my PhD using... Um, uh, fruit flies, little little flies that obviously feed on fruit. Um, they weigh about a milligram. Um, I was selecting them for increased body weight. And let me tell you, it's one of the most exciting things you can do. Um, but I was I had run selection lines for I think I got to about thirty five generations, and there was absolutely no sign of slowing down. The Thank God is, you stopped. They would have been scary creatures. Well, indeed. Uh, <laughs> although I, I worked out last night because I thought this might come up that, that in my PhD I individually weighed enough fruit flies to produce an equivalent weight to one steer, which that's um, scary. A great way to break the ice at parties, I think. But um, <laughs> but the point is that actually, for basically without exception. Selection can go on for very, very, very long times and it will continue, um, you'll continue to be able to make change. And there are two reasons for it. One is there is a lot of um, variation, a lot of differences in the genetic makeup of, of individuals in basically most species and for most traits. Um, and the second thing is that one of the things that's going on all the time in all living organisms, albeit at a very, very low rate, is that basically new forms of bits of DNA are appearing. When people hear the word mutation, that's that's the general term for it. You come up with a slightly different form of a piece of DNA. And that happens at a very, very low rate. But nevertheless, when it does, it's actually generating, uh, in a sense, new possible genetic material that could be useful and 
that goes on at sufficiently high rate, even though it's an extremely low rate, but it, it, it sort of generates new genetic differences for you. So those two things, the fact that there's lot, there is in fact lots and lots of genetic variation in, in the species we're interested in for the things we're interested in, and that genetic variation kind of gets topped up, um, or sorry, gets added to a, a steady but low rate, basically means that we could go on selecting for a very, very long time, um, way, way longer than any of us on this call we are going to be alive. What becomes interesting is, it gets back to your earlier question, Tom, well, what do you actually want to breed for? Because, for example, if we wanted to breed cows that were 10 times bigger than they currently are, we could do that. I'm not going to guess how long it would take, but we could do it. But is that what we want? And usually we want some bundle of things. And um, in a sense, the more things we want usually means we get slightly less change in any particular aspect of it, but the overall package will continue to keep improving. And it's one reason why it's really important to keep thinking about that question, what are we, what are we wanting to breed for? The, that kind of segues into the second part of your question, which I think is what might be in the important in the future. Um, so I don't think we're going to just keep on selecting for growth rate, for instance. Um, I think I'm almost certain methane will be an important trait for the cattle industry in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, possi possibly, think, Robert, even if there isn't a price put on it, um, just social licence and... Um, yeah. so, and and climate responsibility might come into it that people will start yeah. to really purchase beef that is um, carbon neutral or addressing um, its its yeah. greenhouse emission. Well, it, exactly. In in a, in one sense, this is this is me pretending to be an economist, Tom. But um, social license and people having a preference for particular um, production systems ultimately their prices on carbon. So we could do it through a carbon price or we could do it through some value chains marketing, um, you know, basically that they're more beneficial for the environment and they get a premium or that other, other chains don't sell as much. It's, it's a price. I'm almost certain that there'll be a price on carbon one way or another within a very short time. I think welfare traits are going to become more important. Um, consumers who are... Will, to be willing to pay reasonable money for red meat, I suspect they're going to want to know that the animals have had a, a life that's been as, um, what's the word, it's, it's got of as, as simple and pleasant as possible. I think diseases are going to become more important. We don't want animals to get sick and it's possible to breed animals that get less and less you know, infections and what have you. All of those things are, um, in a way, there's, they're... They're a bit of a mixture of cost reduction and also keeping the product attractive to consumers. I think I think those three areas are going to become more and more important. Rob, just to sort of digress a little bit, you know, in beef we've been uh, very single breed specific, and in most other species, uh, agricultural livestock species, um, it's no the the select the genetic. Analysis is now across the whole species, not just within the breed. 
What sort of advantages do you see that in possibly beef in the future moving to multi-bread? In the first instance, I think it will simply help bull buyers um, be more confident that they're getting the genetics that they that is best suited for their production system. Um, obviously, people. Um, consider switching from one breed to another if they might be changing markets or possibly if climate change is influencing feed curves and feed production and so forth. Having some good objective information on the strengths and weaknesses of each of the breeds that are available, I think would just be useful for people in the first instance to be confident that they're basically they're buying the right genetics for their production system and their market and they're paying approximately the right money for it. I think that in turn being more informed will help individual breeds to better focus their improvement efforts on what will really drive value for the value chain so that, you know, if a, if a particular breed, I'm just making this up, but it identifies that it's, um, I don't know, it's, its age at maturity is, too, is, is higher than would be ideal, will that become something that that breed should think about, should we be doing something to change that by selection? Um, so having comparative information like that, I think is beneficial to both the buyers in the market, but also to the people who are offering um, genetic material for sale, because it basically allows you to um, support your product offering more comprehensively and if you find that there are things that you should be improving it's like you've got more reliable information about that rather than just sort of you know a bit of a mixture of anecdote and what have you but whether it leads to some point beyond having a range of breeds available and being used i think will just come down to people's business decisions in the long run. Um, the, there are certainly potential advantages of um, having animals that are mixtures of different breeds or composites, um, particularly for traits that are sometimes are more difficult to improve genetically simply by crossing or combining breeds, you get the advantages of heterosis or hybrid figure. And if your population is big enough and you design it carefully or you design your breeding program, you retain that heterosis and that you kind of get a, a lift in performance all the time. Um, so it's, it's quite possible that in the future we'll see more composites or more composite breeding, I guess. But I, I, I guess personally, I don't see that as a sort of absolute must-have for the industry. Breeds that have got a good large gene pool and that are recording carefully and maintaining diversity in their breeding program um, can be quite competitive and continue to do so, but there's no reason why the animals couldn't be evaluated in a system where you're getting information on how they compare within their breed and also how they compare across breeds. I don't see them as kind of conflicting. Um, so I think, I think having research 
that provides more information on the genetic merit of comparative genetic merit of different breeds and composites is just a useful thing for industry. It helps basically make a more informed market and people will make decisions based on what they think will deliver more value to um, bull buyers and to the value chains. And I suspect there will be some more composites in the future, but the breeds that do a good job of using their existing gene pools will have a perfectly healthy future too. Thanks, Rob. Um, we're getting to the end, so I need to ask you what your three M's are, your mistakes, um, <laughs> your masterpieces and uh, your mentors. What, do you, what, are the, what mistakes have you made in your life, Robert? Um, I sp- I'll let you know, Tom, I spent... <laughs> No, I won't say I spent half the night thinking about these, but they're nice nice questions to have to answer. It was your homework. You probably should have. That's right. Well, (laughs) it's best best to stay awake all night, even if you die doing your homework, I believe. Um, Mistakes. I'm slightly struggling with how to say this because I know there are things in my past that I could have done differently, but at the time I've... I think, barring a few silly things I did when I was young that put myself at risk and, you know, um, shouldn't have done. But uh, in terms of kind of career or life mistakes, if that's the sort of thing you're looking for, and I apologise, this is not going to sound very humble, but it is. I just spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, whatever choices or situations or things come up and... I guess, try to do what I think is the best thing at the time. So if I look back, I can't see anything that says, oh, you know, when I was 43, I I shouldn't have done that. I should have done something different. Now, I might be interpreting your question or I might be just finding out what a boring person I am. But I I can't think of anything, you know, like big thing that I think, oh, I just wish that had not happened. Yeah. Oh, that's it does. It, I'm sorry. It's. I'm not trying to be a smart ass. I. I probably overanalyze most things in my life, but I. I think I've in general done, what I thought was, the right thing to do at the time. If you know what I mean. Well, here's life to that. I wish I had a little bit more of that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's not to say that some things wouldn't be different if I'd done some different things. But yeah. you know, I'm here. I've done what I've done, and that's yeah. my life kind of stuff. So, um, um, what what about um, masterpieces? Um, well, apart from, in a sort of personal sense, my family, um, like having kids is an amazing thing, and a, that's a really humbling experience, and that's um, that's a kind of masterpiece that anybody with children has. In terms of my working life, I guess, and that's what we've been talking about genetics and stuff. Um, I had a, a role in the establishment and development of Lamplan, and that's made an enormous difference to the lives of a lot of people in this country, and it's gone on growing and growing, and I'm, I'm really privileged to have been able to be part of that story. Um, and in my time in MLA, I did quite a lot of different things, but I certainly had a role in the establishment of um, what had been called information nucleus um, herds or flocks and or beef information nucleus is another example. Um, basically, the reference populations for sheep and beef cattle 
in this country. I had a, a, a role in that and I think they've been a good thing and they both the things I've just mentioned connect to something which um, um, somehow I feel, well, again, I feel really privileged to have been involved in and I guess a certain, to a certain extent proud of the fact of working with um, ordinary Australian um, breeders and producers, sheep breeders, beef breeders and so forth, to bring some of the knowledge that I guess I and people with my sort of training have together with the skills of, um, of those breeders across the country. Um, there's something pretty magical in that. It's it's not really me. It's just a kind of magical thing where you bring people together and bring skills and expertise together like that. What we've achieved in several industries in this country in the last three three or so decades is pretty amazing, and it's it's a, a real buzz to have been a small part of that. Um, I think your third question was mentors. Is that correct? That's correct. Mentors. Um. My PhD supervisor, his name was Stuart Barker, he, he had quite a bit to do, in fact, with the original stimulus to get, um, that led to breed plan being developed, but he was, he was a absolutely tireless research scientist and um, very, very, dedica very dedicated, and I guess he was my door into learning about evolution. Um, my PhD was a bit of evolutionary stuff. And Stuart was a he was a he was a fine mentor, although I don't think he would probably think of himself that way. Um, I've had the great privilege of working with a couple of people who have been mentors, particularly through my time in the working for the red meat industry. Um, a guy called Ian Johnson, who is basically been an R and D manager in the meat industry and elsewhere. Um, he's one of the greatest greatest great assets of this country's livestock and knowledge systems, just absolutely outstanding um, R&D um, manager. And in that context also, I had the great fortune to be involved with a guy called Gerald Martin, who was a farmer down the southeast of South Australia, who was on the board of Make uh, Research Corporation back, and he was also the chair of Land Plan uh, when we started. And he was a great mentor because of the sense of, um, I think, just the belief that we could solve problems and, um, you know, get on and have a go at it. There'll be a solution and we'll do it. And that was a, a really great thing to, to kind of have support and encouragement and inspiration from that. And i just say again, the other thing which, in a sense, there's a huge number of people who've been mentors the breeders particularly and farmers that I've worked with, I've just had an amazing privilege to work with so many people across Australia who work in beef and cattle and trees and stuff, particularly beef and sheep breeders because that's who I've worked with most, I guess, um, to learn about their skills and the way they think about the world and to be involved in a sort of two-way exchange. Um, that's been a form of mentoring which... I, I don't reckon too many people in the world get, and I'm so lucky. It's just been great. 
So, Professor Robert Banks, thanks for coming on the Raw Rag podcast today. Um, you've made such a massive contribution, quiet contribution too. I mean, uh, many people in research and um, genetics know what your contribution's been, but it's very, very difficult for perhaps the people that don't really understand what you do behind the scenes for them to fully appreciate it. But your contribution to the Australian beef and lamb and livestock industry has been massive. So thank you very much, Robert, and um, thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Tom. It's been really nice talking to you. I really value the opportunity. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.